Let us start with a word of prayer before we bring the word. Lord, bless this time of preaching your word, looking into your scriptures, studying them, explaining them. Uh, Keep your speaker from error. May the people who hear this also understand it in the way that it's meant to be understood. We pray that you'll be with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we covered the first four verses in Acts chapter 2. So let's start by a review of them, because then we're going to finish up this passage today. And it goes, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And today continues on and says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking God, said, They are filled with new wine. Now, we covered some of this passage last week and in other sermons besides, a loud rushing wind so loud that it caught the attention of others and drew them to where the disciples were. I've also covered many times what the rest of the Jews thought of the crude, unsophisticated, bumpkin Galileans. What I'm going to focus on first here today is verses 4 and 11. The people who responded to the events of Pentecost. Again, verse 4 says, That dwelling in Jerusalem were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven, of course, is just hyperbole that is often used in the Bible. It does not mean every nation. It means a lot of nations. Probably all of the close nations around Israel, as well as some further away, because it says there were some Cyrenes. Um, They have traveled quite a ways to get there. And there were probably most known countries in the Roman Empire were represented. Verse 11 says that the people responding were both Jews and proselytes. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a proselyte as a new convert to a faith or a cause. Wikipedia, yeah, I know, I shouldn't quote Wikipedia, says a righteous proselyte is a Gentile who has converted to Judaism is bound to all the doctrines and precepts of the Jewish religion and is considered a full member of the Jewish people. 
Uh, neither of those descriptions are quite accurate. Some proselytes never completely converted and became Jewish. They were called righteous men. The centurion uh, who sent for Peter was a righteous man. He was not a Jew, but he was a proselyte of the Jewish faith. It is described as some people who drew near to Judaism. More women than men converted due to one painful reason. Men had to undergo circumcision to become a Jew. Many instead lived as Jews, celebrated the feast days, had their male children uh, circumcised when they were born, but did not do so themselves. And so they were proselytes that never were part of the official Jewish church. Proselyte is the Greek word for the Hebrew, ger, as in stranger, but that's not where it comes from, but uh, G-E-R. Um, it meant stranger, but came to be resident alien, somebody who's living among you that is not one of you. The, the original Old Testament word meant an immigrant in the process of assimilation. So they were coming in, they were planning to be assimilated, they were not keeping far off, as it said, they drew near. At the time of Moses, there was no effort to proselytize other countries. People came, they intermarried, they assimilated, all converts came through intermarriage and assimilation of other peoples. The first mention of people converting to Judaism is in Esther, which we have covered not too long ago. But uh, after Haman's plot against the Jews is foiled and Mordecai is allowed to issue a proclamation in the king's name that Jews were able to defend themselves, it says in chapter 8, verse 17, And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So though there were originally no proselytizing in Judaism, by the time of Pentecost, Jewish proselytizing of the nations of the Roman Empire was not just common, but so common that Jesus even mentioned it to the, um, and not to the Pharisees' credit. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So it was quite known back then about proselytizing. You know, I've never given a lot of thought to Jewish history, and I'm going to assume that some of you are like that also. You know, everything I know about Jewish history is from the Bible. I've never studied it. But while Israel was the center of the Jewish faith, there's a larger stories to tell. The list of foreigners in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost includes people from all over the world. We just went through the list, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians. 
All those are mentioned. Interestingly, Greece is not mentioned among them, uh, probably because Greeks were so common among the uh, Jews in Israel. But how did Jews come to be living in so many countries outside of Israel? Well, it started with the Babylonian captivity. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, and he sent a quarter of the people to Babylon, just a quarter. But they were the priests, they were the leaders, the leading men, uh, the merchants. So they were all deported back to Babylon, and the ones left behind without leadership assimilated into the other cultures and began worshiping pagan gods. When Cyrus conquered Babylon, he allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But of all the Jews that were in Babylon by then, after 70 years, only about a quarter returned. So a quarter were deported, a quarter returned. The rest stayed in Babylon. By the 6th century B.C., 600 years before Jesus was born, there were more Jews living outside of Israel than there were living in Israel. The majority of the Jews lived outside of the state of Israel. By 200 years before the birth of Jesus, Jews had settlements in Rome. The Greeks were especially drawn to uh, the Jewish religion because of their love of philosophy and of ideas. And there were people who acted like Jews without even being proselytes in Greece. Between 200 and 300 B.C., a a group of scholars, and they were in Alexandria, called the Seventy, translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, giving the Greek-speaking world an entry into the thinking and religion of the Jews. We We know that translation is a Septuagint, for the 70 translators of the committee. By the time of Jesus, there were about 6 million Jews in the Roman Empire. One million of them lived in Israel. So the vast majority lived outside of Israel. It was said that the Jews, and this is from contemporary writings, not biblical, crowded with their numbers every ocean and country And that was in 160 B.C. Josephus quoted uh, Strabo, a Greek geographer, as saying, It is hard to find a place in the inhabited earth that has not admitted this tribe of man and is not possessed by them. There was a large, as I said, uh, settlement in Alexandria where the Septuagint was translated. There were Jewish settlements in Yemen, in Crimea, which never think about. There were Jewish settlements in India and even in China. So Jews were in many countries other than those listed here in Acts. Indeed, there are, these are the local countries, but still they spoke different languages. Verse 8 says, And how How is it that we hear each of us in our own language? They were astonished that they heard about God's mighty deeds in the language of their birth. And some of those countries are mentioned, and by extension the languages involved, Parthia, which is often mentioned with uh, uh, Mede, is a part of Persia. 
So it will be assumed that they were speaking a form of Persian. Elamites were from came down from Elam, a nation descended from the son of Shem. Their language was also Persian, Mesopotamia, which means between the rivers, is also called the cradle of civilization. It was the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, and their language was Syriac. Judea is mentioned next, and some people have suggested that this was a mistake in the manuscript, because after all, didn't Judea and Galilee share the same language? Well, as we've seen, uh, not really. Uh, Galileans were hard for Judeans to understand, and there were different dialects besides. Cappadocia was in Asia Minor, east of the Euphrates. Uh, the land, the language that they spoke is not known, but it's assumed to be Greek. It is mentioned by Greek writers as being, oh, this was just an aside. Cappadocia is mentioned by Greek writers as being one of the three wickedest places starting with a C, just to let you know. Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia are all in Asia Minor and would be Greek-speaking. Egypt is next, and Coptic is the language of, of uh, Egypt, but it's pointed out that since the uh, conquering of Egypt by Alexander the Great, it had been more or less a Greek colony. So Greek was highly, it's where the Septuagint was translated, Greek was highly spoken there. Libya was a word used for the heart of Africa that was not Egypt. It was just, there was Egypt and then there was Libya. So it was, and what it says here is also the um, part of Africa I mean, Cyrene was 500 miles west of Alexandria near present-day Tripoli, and a large number of Jews lived there. And so the description of the parts of Libya that belonged to Cyrene were the surrounding territory. And we know Cyrene because it had a large Jewish population. Simon of Cyrene carried the Lord's cross for him when he stumbled. They were often seen in in Israel. And then visitors from Rome and Cretans and Arabians. We don't know how many languages were spoken on the day of Pentecost. Some people and modern scholars say everybody spoke Aramaic and Greek. They only needed two. But what's said here is we're hearing it in the land, uh, in the language of our land. Some people, older scholars have totaled up to figure out how many languages were being spoken, counted the people groups, but a lot of the people said there were 15 or 17 languages spoken, but a lot of the people spoke the same language. But remember, this was a signed gift. This was to authenticate the authority of their gifting by God. Luke uses two words for tongues and languages here. And either word can be substituted for dialect. Aramaic and Greek had many regional dialects that would be hard for outsiders to understand. Carlos was just agreeing with that before the service and saying there's a lot in Mexico dialects and you, you can't tell, you can't understand one from another sometimes there. Greek alone had Koine Greek, Attic, Doric, Aeolic, Iconic, and others, and they were various forms of Greek. The differences between these went so far as to have 
their own set of grammatical and structural rules. It is no less a miracle when they say, as in uh, verse 11, we hear them tell us in our own tongues of the mighty works of God than if they said we hear in our own dialects the mighty works of God. There is another camp, including some of the early church fathers, who say that the construction, remember Greek didn't have commas, it didn't have punctuation marks, and they say if you read this a certain way, it could support the contention that the disciples were speaking their own language and everybody else was hearing them speak in their own tongue. Um, A miracle also, uh, I don't think that's what's being conveyed here, but it's God can do any of these things. Verse 12 in Acts 2 says, And they were amazed and perplexed, saying, What does this mean? This is the whole point of Pentecost. Getting people to hear the gospel and then ask, what does this mean? That's the whole point of evangelism, is hearing the gospel. What does this mean? And then verse 12 finishes up the passage. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Now, has this ever happened to you? Have you been mocked for your faith? And I bring this up because I haven't. I know that uh, I know people who disagree with me on things of uh, God, but uh, I haven't been mocked. But I bet if we ask Pastor Bill sitting back there, I'll bet he's heard you fool. You believe that? Maybe at Planned Parenthood, and maybe at the DMV, or City Hall, or Walmart. I'm sure he's probably heard that many times, but I don't run in the right circles, or I don't run in the wrong circles, one or the other. I don't know which one that is, but I'm pretty sure he heard what the apostles heard at Pentecost. He's nuts. He's full of new wine, when actually they're all full of the Holy Spirit. Now, while I haven't been mocked for my faith to my face, I do know what the world thinks about it. It's pretty hard not to not to hear it. The, the news media is quite clear about what they think about Christians, about that we should keep our Christianity in the church, that we should not be bringing it into the public square. I mean, that's a separation of church and state, you know? Movies aren't shy about mocking Christians as bad guys or foolish, if not downright evil. Uh, We seem to be the only people that are allowed to be discriminated against anymore. Well, I I guess now uh, the entire white uh, civilization can be mocked. But uh, And here we have it at Pentecost. They're full of new wine. We'll see later that it was 9 o'clock in the morning, so what they were being accused of was being day drinkers, not even day drinkers, being morning drinkers, being drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning. They're mocked for being out of their minds, while in reality, the apostles and disciples gathered there were seeing the world 
more clearly than any group of people had seen it before. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and seeing the world with the mind of God. I began this by looking at proselytes and the Jewish leaders actively recruiting among the Greeks and the Romans they were living amidst. And while the Old Testament does not command the Jews go out and make believers, the New Testament does. The book of Matthew ends this way. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The book of Mark ends this way. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. You know, it's called the Great Commission. And it's the last commandment God speaks in the Bible. I find my self-checking out many websites as I research uh, for these sermons. Most are good. Solid Reformed sources are sometimes odd ones speaking. I accidentally clicked on a Jehovah's Witness website uh, this past day. I did not read it, not because it would do me any harm, but because it wouldn't do me any good. They are not scholars. They uh, do not have the Holy Spirit. They don't have discernment. There are many things they do not have, and um, so I went off it immediately. But, but on one Jewish site, a young woman was complaining about Christians proselytizing her. And it went somewhat like, I didn't write it down, but if one more Christian speaks to me about Jesus, uh, oh, and she also says, uh, Jews don't proselytize them and so she didn't know her own history and I often listen to this prayer so listen and he's an observant Jew and who says that the greatest thing that has happened to any Jew ever is to live in the United States amongst Christians and uh, about Christian proselytizing him he says it's a kindness if people truly believe that the only way I can be saved is to tell me about Jesus Christ, they are doing me a kindness, even if I don't agree with them. They are not trying to harm me. Now, while Christianity is explicitly made of proselytes, I mean, if you think about it, uh, there was no Christianity. And 
here at Pentecost, they're preaching and, uh, and making a church is what's about to happen, then the entire Christian church is made up of people who are proselytes. Correct? We know that. But Judaism is also made up almost exclusively proselytes. Somebody, when I read today, points out that it's a common misconception that following the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 and then AD 135, that the Jews were driven from the land and that modern Jews are their descendants. Actually, there was no diaspora after the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. Most of the Jews that were still there were working the land. They were farmers. They did not get driven out and go anywhere. They stayed. And basically got assumed into Christian and then Muslim populations. Jews of the actual diaspora from 600 to 100 B.C., including the ancestors of today's northern European Ashkenazi uh, Jewish population, are largely the descendants of proselytes. They are not uh, Abraham's children by blood. They've been adopted into the Jewish religion. What does that sound like? Adopted into the Jewish religion. But they're not the descendants of Abraham. What did Jesus say? That God could raise up children for Abraham from stones? Well, that's what he did. And that's what he did with us also. This commentator goes on to say, and this is a direct quote, Although today's Jews still identify with the Israel of the Old Testament, they are not uniquely the descendants of the patriarchs, and their rejection of Jesus has locked their focus on the tribal aspects of the Old Testament tradition while distancing themselves from the universal message of the Old Testament prophets. Every Sabbath, Jews throughout the world bless their daughters with this saying, May God let you be like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. What do they have in common? Not one of those famous Jewish women were born Jewish. They were all converted. The blessing for boys is that they be like Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, born to his Egyptian wife. You do know that there's two ways to become a Jew, even today. One is you're born to a Jewish mother. And one is that you convert. Well, Ephraim and Manasseh were not born to a Jewish woman. They were born to an Egyptian woman. One final bit that has always bothered me. And I'll bet it's bothered you people too. And it's probably bothered every Christian believer ever. Why did the Jews reject Jesus? Hmm? You think about that ever? Why with all the clear prophecy that God would send his son as a Messiah to bless all the nations, which it says very clearly, did they not believe? Well, I mentioned earlier that there were six million Jews 
in the Roman Empire at the time of Pentecost. But by the end of the 300s, there were less than 300,000 in Rome, in the Roman Empire. They were not killed. They were not persecuted. There was a little bit of persecution after the destruction of Jerusalem in 150. But it wasn't a mass. It wasn't going out and killing like they were doing with the Christians. They didn't mass migrate anywhere. So where did 95% of the Jews in the Roman Empire disappear to? What happened to that 95%? Well, I think that the uh, vast majority of the Jews in the world was Pentecost. Pentecost happened to them. They didn't disappear. 95% of the Jews believed in Jesus. A small percentage did not. The Jews were no longer in the Roman Empire because they were now in God's kingdom. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, that you provide us a way to understand not only you, but your world, history, the church, people who oppose us. We thank you that we can study your word, that we can teach your word, that we can understand your word. And we know that's all you're doing through the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.